Would you please turn with me to the book of Revelation, the fifth chapter. Let me tell you what I believe you already know. The fourth chapter and the fifth chapter are really one. It's, it's the same scenario. In the fourth chapter, if you remember at verse 1, John writes, After these things. Now this is an important transition. This is the third transition in the book of Revelation. The first was when John saw in chapter 1 Jesus Christ in all of his magnificence, in all of his glory, much like the song that we just sing, sang, You are our risen King, seated in majesty. That's what we're going to see. That song is perfect for the message today. It has everything to do with what we are going to look at. And so John said, I saw Jesus. Now John knew him. He, he, he walked with him. They were friends and everything. But, but when he saw Jesus in this state, in this resurrected state, in this glorified state, then John, John could hardly describe him. And, and that's one of the problems we're going to have as we go through this great book, the book of Revelation. There is a lot of symbolism. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because John is trying to explain the unexplainable. He's trying to describe to you and me what he is seeing in heaven, and he had never seen anything like that before. And so he is trying to put across to you and me what, we, what he is seeing, what we can look forward to. And so after he said this about Jesus, then in the next two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, which I really fell in love with. I absolutely adore chapters 2 and 3 because it shows the church. It shows the church age from the day of Pentecost until the Lord comes back to take his church up with him in heaven through the rapture. We have seen in chapters 2 and 3 the church. We saw all of its blemishes. We saw all of its bad parts, but we also saw the good parts. And, and we were to learn from the good as well as from the bad. And I, I made mention to you, and I pray that I'm not overstepping my bounds as a, as a human being speaking in behalf of what the Lord might think of us, but I believe that we're a lot like the wonderful things we saw of some of the wonderful churches because we have centered our church upon the person and the name of Jesus Christ and Him alone. We have no other tenets here. We have no other rules or regulations other than what is written within the Word of God. And so we believe that your faith and your whole being as being a believer in Jesus Christ is not upon the church that you attend, but the faith that you have in Jesus Christ and that you trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. All the other things are things that we ought to do as we grow in our faith. And that's our part. Our part is to help you and you to help me for us to help one another grow in our faith and our trust in our walk with Jesus Christ. And all the things we do are centered around that, even the, the wonderful hoedown that Jeff and, and Brent told us about. That, that is going to be really the purpose is to reach out into the community, to reach out into your lives. All that we do is for that purpose. But all that you must do, and nobody can help you, and nobody can make you, is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then your growth is your decision to grow, and we will help you and we want you to help us grow 
in our faith. And so we saw that in chapters 2 and 3. We saw the church. It's wonderful. But now, John says, as he does in chapter 4, in verse 1, after these things, in other words, after he saw and explained to us Jesus Christ in chapter 1, after he looked and examined the churches in chapters 2 and 3, now he is presented, as we mentioned two weeks ago, into heaven itself. He is now in the very throne room of God. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's really no need to have an extra chapter in there. They all fit together. It's the same scenario in heaven. And so John says in chapter 4 and verse 1, after these things I looked and behold there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that he heard, in other words the voice that he heard in chapter 1, I've I've said it both times and I've never looked it up. I think it was verse 19. No, it was not verse 19. It was verse 12. Both other services I was wrong. In chapter 1 and verse 12, it's the same voice that he heard, a voice that was like the sound of a trumpet speaking to him. And he says, after I heard this voice, the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, saying to me, come on up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And now we've come into the the third, if you would outline, the third point that the Lord is trying to make. And what he is now going to make is he's going to show us what's going to take place after the church age, after these things. This is what he's going to explain. And we're going to see, and you're going to find out with me, that it isn't a very pretty picture. The things that are going to take place is going to be a terrible time on this earth. It's going to be a lot of trouble. And I believe, and I say to you, and I will always tell you this, I believe, but put it in pencil, that we are going to go before the tribulation hits. We will be the church in heaven. In fact, I believe we are the elders that are seated with our Lord and and fall prostrate before Him in heaven itself. But we're going to see what it looks like. And we're going to see that the times, as it mentions in Ezekiel, is there's mourning, there's weeping, there's lamentations, there's woe on this earth. It's going to get worse and worse. And so we have, we have the privilege, really we have the right to tell people to beware, come to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And so what John is writing now, in this chapter, watch, hold on with me. He is explaining to us, finally, Jesus Christ when he takes over all the things from the Father. This is the place that he had told the disciples he was one day going to judge the world. Not now, he said, not while I'm here, but one day I will judge the world. And this is the place where all of authority, all of power, all of everything is now handed over from the Father to the Son. It's a magnificent picture. Read it with me. It's incredible. Read chapter 5, and let's go to about verse 7. We we cannot cover the whole chapter, and that's okay. We've got time. But let's read and see what we have here in chapter 5. Let's read to about... mm, Oh, let's, let's go to verse 7, but I, I don't know how far we'll go. We'll go as far as we can. I saw, he said in verse 1 of chapter 5, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In verse 3, John writes, and no one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, 
was able to open the book or to look into it. And so he says in verse 4, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw, John writes, between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it, the book, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Enough enough for this morning. Just note what John says. Seven eyes, seven, seven horns. He, look, he's trying to explain to you and me what, what is unexplainable. He, he can't really put it into words what he is seeing. And I'm going to tell you up front that I'm not going to know everything that is written in here, but we will, we will tell you the best that we can. I will not take it upon myself to guess. I'm going to go read as many commentaries of many faithful people that I know and see what is said about these things. And when I don't know for certain, I will tell you. And you and I can read for ourselves and see if we can find a piece about what does it mean, at least within our hearts. But the very structure, the very foundation of what is meant here is, is, is evident. You can't miss it. And what is so evident is that your faith the, the trust that you have in Jesus Christ is, is, is everything to you. And it's everything to all of us who have ever trusted and believed in Jesus Christ and He alone for the forgiveness of our sin and so that we might live with Him forever and ever in heaven. And He says here in chapters 4 and 5, take faith. It's me. It's, I'm who I say I am. Now, He said that before, and, and, and people that say that, you know, you read the Bible and, and, and that Jesus never really said that he was the Messiah. That's a bunch of, well, let me give you, I looked it up. It's a theological word that he used in seminary. And forgive me for that. It's baloney. <laughs> That's the word I came up with. Baloney. He has told us over and over and over and over again, I am the Messiah. They knew it. And yet they rejected him. And so you and I now have the opportunity to hold on to a faith so sturdy and so strong because John explains who we are looking at here in chapters 4 and 5. Let's pray and let's take a look at this marvelous place in the Word of God. Oh, Father, thank you for the song that we just sang. Thank you so much, Father, that we can see you in your majesty. One day we will. Death could not hold you down. You are our risen King. And so, Father, we want to tell you we love you. We want to find out more about you. We want to walk through this life full of passion towards who you are, obediently, Father, walking with you because you deserve our obedience. We, we, we really must need to be good children of yours. So help us, Father, please. Most of us, if not everyone here, desires to walk with you as purely as we can. We thank you, Father, for our ability to ask you for forgiveness because as humans we fall short. But please, Father, let us get away from the frequencies of, of our falling short and walk more and more 
obediently with you. Let us see you as John sees you for who you are. And so, Father, I beg of you, I, I pray with all of my heart, would you, you would open up our eyes. As you tell us in the book of Psalms, 119th chapter, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And so move me aside, please. Speak to us, each of us individually, so that we might hear your heart, see you for who you are. I pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Look what we see. Last week in chapter 4 and verse 10, we saw the 24 elders fall down. Now, I tried to reason with you that I believe that the 24 elders, the, word, the number 24 means whole or complete. The elders mean those who are the church. Not, not just a specific group, but all of us, the church. We prostrate, it says, ourselves worshiping at the feet of Jesus. That happens at least six times here in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 10. Twice here in chapter 5, verses 8 and 14. Once in chapter 7, verse 11. Once in chapter 11, verse 16. And once in chapter 19, verse 4. The posture to prostrate ourselves is a natural, ought to be a natural response to worship. That is, to worship Jesus Christ, once we see him for who he truly is, in his majesty, in his glory, in all that he really truly is. And so what we see in chapter 4 and verse 10 are the 24 elders, I believe us, the church, from, from the day of Pentecost until the Lord calls us to be home with him. We all take off our crowns and we, we toss them, we place them at his feet before his throne. In other words, everything of ourselves pales in comparison to the, the awesome power and majesty of who He is. So today what we are going to see is the promise that Jesus Christ made while He was on this earth fulfilled. We are going to see God the Father hand over to God the Son, Jesus Christ, all power and all authority because it is Jesus as the only one who was found worthy to open up the book or the scroll. Now what is this book? What is the scroll? Well, what, is going to, what we're going to find out it is, as I mentioned to you, Ezekiel says in the second chapter, verses 9 and 10, basically he says this, written in this scroll were lamentations, mournings, woes. What is going to happen on the earth is devastating. That is why it's imperative for you and me to warn and to, and to lovingly tell our family and our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors and even our enemies to tell them about Jesus Christ. They need to understand who He is because what is opened up in this scroll is how Jesus Christ is going to take back the earth from Satan Men and women who have teamed up against God and God's purpose of life, against demons and fallen angels. This chapter searches for the one who is worthy enough to open with and deal with this book, this scroll with seven seals. Now it all begins, verse 1, importantly, most important phrase of them all. Read it again with me, verse 1. 
John says, I saw in the right hand of him. Let's stop right there. It's enough. Throughout Scripture, the right hand is symbolic of the place of God's complete dominance, power, control, and authority. Read with me again verses 6 and 7 of this particular chapter, chapter 5. John said, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, creatures and the elder, note, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's the best he could do. We'll try to make sense of that. But note, verse 7, this one who was a lamb standing as if it was slain came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Folks, this is, this is the glorious moment. This is the moment of moments that you and I, whether we know it or not, have been waiting for all of eternity. And that is for God the Son to come and to take from God the Father all power, all control, all sovereignty, all authority. Everything is given to the Lamb who is standing as if slain. Now, who that is, is critical. It's critical for everyone to understand who is this Lamb who is standing as if slain. Now, John's going to explain. You and I know exactly who it is. We don't have to wonder. We know that Jesus Christ came the first time as a lamb to go to the cross and die for the sin of this world. We know. But so many people do not know. And it is at this very point in time of all of eternity that we see the transition of power that Jesus Christ spoke of. I want you to see it. It is a glorious moment. To hold your place here, turn back to the Gospel of John. Fourth book in Matthew of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Please turn to John chapter 5. You might want to mark this place. Now the Jews, when it says the Jews, it is always speaking about the religious leaders of the day. In John chapter 5, let's start in verse 17. Well, no, ah, I'm sorry, let's go to 16. It says, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus Christ, in my opinion, always did things on the Sabbath just to kind of tweak them, just to get them to, to think and to get them a little bit angry so that they might try to figure out what's he doing? Why on the Sabbath? Who does he think he is? And so he did this on the Sabbath and he said to them, verse 17, what he said earlier, I and my father are one. Remember they asked him, would you tell us plainly, who are you? Who in the world are you? He says, I've told you. I've told you, he said, you, the problem is you just don't listen. I'm the Messiah. There's people, in the Bible, there's people that don't know the Bible that say that the Bible contradicts itself. That's not true at all. And they, there's people that say that Jesus Christ never said that he was God. Yes, he did. Those who, who heard him firsthand knew exactly what he was saying. Because every time he said it, they picked up stones to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Well, let's see. Look at here at verse 18. For this cause, because he says my father is working and now I'm working, what he is saying is, I'm God. 
Look what they say. For this cause, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus Christ. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but now he's calling God his own father. He is making himself equal with God. Do they know? Of course they knew. They knew what he was saying. So Jesus answered and said to them in verse 19, Truly, truly, I, I say to you, a son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. He says, whatever the father does, these things the son does also in like manner. He says in verse 20, the father loves the son. And the father shows all things that he himself is doing. And he says, greater works than these will he show him so that you might marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives life to the dead, even so, he says, the son gives life to, to whom he wishes. Now look at verse 22. For not even the father judges anyone. But He, the Father, has given all judgment to the Son. Bingo! This is it! Chapter 5, this is it of Revelation. The Father takes out of His right hand and gives to the Son all authority and power. This is it! This is what Jesus Christ was explaining to them while He was on the earth. And why does the Father do that? He explains. He says so in verse 23. So that all people, everyone, will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If you do not honor the Son, he says, you do not honor the Father who has sent him. And so Jesus Christ puts it all into one, one wonderful sweet package. You've got to love the Son. Otherwise you can't say that you love the, the Father. I want you to see a beautiful place in Scripture. I, I, I didn't have this in my notes, and, and I, I kind of came upon it. Same book, Book of John. Turn to the end of it, chapter 20, please. Chapter 20. You'll remember the story. It's a beautiful story. The, the disciples are all in the upper room. They're locked in there, and they're very despondent. Jesus Christ died. And they've been on this roller coaster ride, and they've been, oh, wonderful belief, and then all of a sudden, boom, they don't, and then all of a sudden they believe again, and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus Christ goes to the cross. He's dead. He's dead. What are they to think? And I, I thought about this place in Scripture, and I thought about how many of us go through this roller coaster ride in our lives. You know, sometimes really our faith is magnificent. Other times we feel like we're the lowest of the low. And so he comes and he presents himself to the disciples, and they're so excited. And one person wasn't there. Who? Thomas. We get the name Doubting Thomas. Thomas isn't there. And they are really excited. They said, Thomas, Thomas, you should have been here. The Lord came. And we saw him. And what does Thomas say? Whoa, praise the Lord. No, he says, big deal. I don't want to believe. He's like us. He's had it. He's had it. He's had the highs and the lows. He's had it. He's like the guys on the road to Damascus. Remember when Jesus Christ appeared to them and they didn't recognize him? And he says, what's going on? He says, are you, they said to him, you're the only one that doesn't know. We had been hoping that he was the one. But he's dead. So Thomas says in verse, what, where am I? Oh, I'm still in six. I should have turned with you. I'm sorry. Thomas, verse 24, one of the twelve called Didymus. He wasn't with them, with them when Jesus Christ came. The other disciples in verse 25 were saying to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. 
He said to them, big deal. That's my words, big deal. He says, no, unless I see my own hands and the imprints of his nail, and unless I put my finger in the place of the nails and my hand into his sides, I'm not going to believe. I've had it. I've had it. I've had it up to here with all of this. That's the way I read this. Unless I can do this, I'm not going to believe, guys. I want to show you how much our Lord loves each of us individually through the person of Thomas. And I'm going to show you how God, Jesus Christ, so loves you that he mentions you and me in Scripture. He appears in the room eight days later. Read with me. In verse 26, after eight days, the disciples were inside the room, and this time Thomas was with them. And Jesus comes. The doors were shut. In other words, it was all locked. And there he is, standing in the midst of them, saying, Peace be with you. And then he looks and he says to Thomas, verse 27, Thomas, reach here your finger. See my hand? Reach here your hand. Put it in my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing, Thomas. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, and my God, and I say to Thomas, big deal. Who wouldn't have believed? Here he appears in this room. Here he comes out of nowhere. Here he shows him his wounds, and he says, don't be unbelieving anymore, John. Believe. And I say, my Lord and my God, and you ought to look at me and say, big deal. Anyone could believe in that circumstance. Watch what our Lord says to Thomas. It's absolutely phenomenal. After Thomas answered in verse 28 and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? May I add? Big deal, Thomas. But then he says, Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. That's me. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's us. We are blessed because we haven't seen and yet we still believe. And in Revelation chapter 5, John is trying to put you on a rock that is so solid that you'll never be shaken again with the highs and the lows of our faith. He's trying to stabilize us so that we become a people that grasp the whole idea of true, honest faith. Those of us who have never seen and yet believe. Please turn back with me to Revelation chapter 5. I wanted to set that for you. So it's here in chapter 5 that our our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ takes complete control of destiny, of life, and of death. And He's going to open this book and speak to the future events that are coming to this earth. There are seven seals. We're going to open each one of them and we're going to examine them the best we know how. And they are all to be open and read. That is completely opposite of what was said in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. The Gabriel, the angel, came to Daniel and said, Look at this 
book. Look at this scroll and read it. But he says, I want you to conceal the words. This is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Conceal the words. Seal up this book until the end of time. Well, here in Revelation chapter 5, it is Jesus Christ who now opens the book and reveals to us its meaning. And yes, the end of time that Daniel wrote about where these things were to be concealed are now open for you and me to understand the best we can and to know what's going to take place. In verse 2 we see, it says in in Revelation chapter 5, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open up this book? And who's worthy to break its seals? The word strong there, I just want to say this, it, it, it really has nothing to do with, with, the, with the context of what is being said here, but the word strong leads us to believe that it is none other than Gabriel who has come back to make this proclamation in heaven. Now, it, we don't know for sure because it's not said that it's Gabriel. It could be Michael, it could, who knows? It could be any one of our Lord's angels. But we know that that the word Gabriel means strength of God. But more importantly, we know in Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 12 that it was Gabriel, the angel, who spoke to Daniel and said, conceal these things until the end of times. Now, whoever it is, it's, it's irrelevant. Let me just say this. John, after hearing these words, becomes despondent. Why? Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. John. John says, No one in heaven, nor on, nor under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. In other words, the search went throughout all of this universe. In heaven, earth, under the earth, nobody was found worthy. And so John says in verse 4, I therefore wept greatly. Because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Now why did John weep? We don't know. Now I, I, I wanted to know. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to have a, an educated guess. And so I read and I read and I read and I came upon a commentary that Dr. Criswell wrote why he thought John wept. And I said, great. Let me copy this down. Let me edit it a little bit because I wanted to put it kind of in our vernacular so that we might get it. And so I hope Dr. Criswell doesn't mind. But I'm telling you up front, this is some of my stuff and I'll tell you which is mine and what is his. But here's what he wrote concerning why John wept. He said, The tears of John represent the tears of all people throughout all the centuries. He says they represent the tears of Adam and Eve when they were driven out of the garden. They represent the tears of Adam and Eve when they stood over the grave of their son Abel, killed by their other son Cain. They represent the tears of the children of Israel who were in slavery, crying out to God in their affliction and in their bondage. He wrote, they are the tears of God's elect, believers over the years from, I write, I say this, from Pentecost till now, who cried into heaven itself over the dead, standing beside an open grave of a loved one. They represent the tears of those who go through trials and suffering, 
the indescribable heartaches and disappointments that, that all of us have gone, to, uh, gone through to one degree or another. These are my words. I believe they represent the tears of Jesus Christ when he wept over Jerusalem. And I would imagine he wept over the rejection of all mankind, denying that he is the Messiah. Dr. Criswell goes on to write, They are the tears of the curse of sin that has been laid upon the creation of God. They are John's tears over the failure to rid this earth of over sin and death and its curse, over the damnation of hell that would remain forever and ever in the hands of Satan without someone to open this book. But what we see happen in verse 5 is an amazing thing. An elder. Now most commentaries that I read believe it was the church. Not an elder meaning a, a, a particular official title, but the church itself an elder comes to John and says in verse 5, Stop weeping, John. Because the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the lion that is the root of David, the one who is overcome, will open its book and its seven seals. As we taught last week, and I believe with all my heart, the elder represents the resurrected church. See, who, who should know for certain who Jesus Christ truly is. It is the church that knows that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. It is us, believers in Jesus Christ, who realize that He is the Lion that has come from the tribe of Judah. It is us, the church, who knows that He is the Root of David. It is us, the church, that know He is the one who is worthy to open it because He was the one who was overcome. Goodness, we have just read in chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus Christ says to those of us who overcome, listen to what He says, to you who overcome, I will grant that you would sit down with Me on My throne as I also, Jesus says, have overcome and sat down with My Father on His throne Jesus Christ not only overcame, but He is called, we know very well, the Lion from the tribe of Judah. He is called the Root of David. These are prophetic words concerning and foretelling Israel's coming Messiah. The Messianic hope for Israel and the world, Jew and Gentile alike. In Genesis chapter 49, we learn that Judah says, Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your, excuse me, yes, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And your father's sons will bow down before you, Judah. Judah, you are like a lion's whelp. You crouch and you lie down as a lion. And as a lion, who would dare to rouse up against you? And then in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 49, it says, The scepter, in other words, the staff, the ruling staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath, between his feet. You see, out of the, the lion-like tribe of Judah comes the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. How do we know for certain? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14 tells us so. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, It is evident that our Lord was a descendant from Judah. Lion from the tribe of Judah. Now tragically, the Jews completely misjudged their Messiah. Not all of them. 
at that day though most of them, and so do many others, religious people who try to make God into their image, you know, try to transform and make God into what they think God ought to be like. Instead of understanding who is He? What does He say of Himself? How ought we to believe in Him? How has He decided to reveal Himself to mankind? True, He is a lion who will eventually destroy His enemies, but He's going to do it according to His timetable, not ours or anyone else's. His lion-like judgment yet awaits a future date. We don't we can't tell Him when to come. We don't have that right. We just wait in obedience for Him to come. And so what John does is he gives us all the evidence in the world to know this is He. This is He. He has now taken over full power. Your faith and trust in Jesus Christ is pure. It's, it's, it's what you want it to be. He is everything to you. And He has proven it. And so like... Unlike, hopefully, doubting Thomas, you and I become believers. And Jesus can look us in the eye one day and say, Blessed are you who never saw me and yet believed. The Jews of that day expected the Messiah to be a powerful one and to liberate them. Just like the men said on the road to Damascus. We were hoping that he would set us free. They wanted him to be their king right there on earth. And because Jesus Christ failed to live up to their expectations of what God should do, they rejected Him and killed Him. But Jesus never had a political, a political agenda here on this earth when He came the first time. As a matter of fact, He had anything but in John chapter 6 and verse 15, it said, Jesus Christ perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him their king. He went and hid himself from them. That's John chapter 6, verse 15. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, he said, my servants would be fighting right now. He said, No, my, my kingdom is not of this realm. No, no, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that is to come. And so we see him as the, the lion out of the, out of the tribe of Judah. And we also see him as the ruler, the descendant of David. Look, look with me at the end of this great book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, the last chapter. Just look for a second at verse 16. Jesus Christ wants you and me to know who we believe in. And so he says this concerning himself. He says, I... Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Who is he? He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I'm the bright morning star, Jesus says of himself. That messianic title comes from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 11, as well as the New. Jesus Christ wants to incorporate for all of us to know without a shadow of a doubt of a, upon whom we have placed our faith and our trust. He's faithful. He is who He says He is. And so when He doesn't come on your timetable, when He doesn't do the things that you want Him to do, don't lose faith. Even though you've not ever seen Him, you're blessed because you believe in Him. So that's what he's trying to teach us here in this 
fifth chapter, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, he was born, Jesus, a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's the messianic title that is frequently used of our Lord. In other words, he is our Messiah. In Luke, as well as in the the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus Christ teaches us that his mother Mary came from the line of David, as well as his father, earthly father, Joseph, came as a direct descendant out of David's son, Solomon. In Luke chapter 1, if you read it yourself, I would encourage you to do so. Just the genealogy of Jesus Christ in verses 26 to 35, we can see that concerning Jesus Christ, when he was born, he was from the line of David. And so he doesn't pull any punches. He is, he is the root or the descendant of David, and he is the lion out of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who is opening this book. He is the one who has taken the book from the right hand of, of the Father. He is the one who is in control of our destiny, everyone's destiny. Why they deny him, I have no idea. But you and I need to warn people. We need to warn them. Because the day might be drawing nigh. Well, what we're going to see next week is the paradox of Scripture. The, the place in Scripture where people say, look, Scripture contradicts itself. You hear that all the time. Just when people tell you that, say, when's the last time you read the Bible? Would you show me where it is? They, they won't be able to show you. But here it says that he's a, a lion, but it also says he's a lamb. Which is it? He's both. He came the first time as a lamb to sacrifice himself shed his blood upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sin and the sin of this whole world. When he comes a second time, he will not be a lamb. He's going to come as a fierce, roaring lion. And for some of us, when we study what is going to take place, it's going to be tough because it's not a pretty picture upon those who have refused to believe in Jesus Christ. There is a terrible destiny for them. It's not our rules. It's not our rules. But we need to proclaim it. We need to talk about it and understand it. So next week we're going to see the wonders of what John saw when he looked at the throne of God. and We're going to try to explain it best we know how because I will remind you over and over again, John is trying to explain the unexplainable. He's never seen anything like it before. So we'll try and do the same. Would you close with me in prayer? Father in heaven above, thank you for your grace and your kindness. And Father, I want to just share with you how much I love these people. And I want to say it out loud so they hear it over and over again, Father. I thank you for the privilege of being a part of this church. I pray you'll bless us, Father. And for those of us here, anyone here that is not certain whether they know you yet or not, whether they have trusted in you and believe in you, please, Father, please, let them come to that place of faith to trust in you for the forgiveness of their sin so that they might become the people of God that you've, you've intended them to become. Bless them all, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.